0: Hi, I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a biweekly podcast produced by Cure Epilepsy. This week, we revisit some of our favorite guests and discussions from the past year in our Best of Seizing Life 2020. Kristen Godale, a PhD candidate at the University of Cincinnati, spoke with us about growing up with epilepsy and how her experiences have led her to pursue a career in
1: epilepsy research. I was diagnosed quite young, around two. My mom um, first saw that I was having absence seizures, um, the kind where you just stare off blankly and then it disrupts what you're doing. And she first noticed it when I would play with my toys, I would drop them and she didn't know what they were. I was taken to an epileptologist and I was diagnosed with epilepsy. And you know, even in the 90s, that was quite a diagnosis. Um, we weren't as far advanced with our research and clinical understanding of the disease at the time. And it was, it was hard, I'd say, for my family and myself.
0: You were diagnosed at such a young age. What was that like growing up with epilepsy? Did How did it impact your childhood?
1: It, it impacted it, um, I'd say positively and negatively. Positively in the sense that I got to spend a lot of time with my family. Um, my mom would make these overnight EEG visits so fun. Uh, she got me an Easy Bake Oven one time. We did crafts. But you know, the next day when I went in and I had to miss school or you know it it was hard but like growing up with it at first i didn't really understand it and as a young child it didn't bother me very much missing out on a bunch of stuff but it wasn't until i was in middle school it got became harder to live with um i struggled in school
0: did it impact the activities that you were able to participate in
1: yeah um i wasn't able to do any sleepovers and i was just so afraid of all my peers seeing me have a seizure. And of course that happened. And I lost a lot of friends because of, I had epilepsy and I had seizures. And at the time I was always mad, like, oh, why am I losing friends? But as an adult, I I understand why seizures are really scary for adults, um, let alone kids. And um, I remember one time I was in middle school and I had a seizure. And then I remember kids mimicking me have a seizure, oh. and it was hard. It was hard. I
0: can imagine the the stigma that that you felt along with that. So, um, how was it when you got to high school? Did it get any better? Did you tell people after um, they witnessed the seizures in school in middle school?
1: Um, So when I got to high school, I I still tried to hide it. Um, So I moved to a different city. Um, My dad got a new job and I had a new chance to start off fresh. No one knew I had epilepsy. I'm going to hide it for as long as I can. I did that. But then again, you know, you have a seizure, you lose friends and it's the same thing all over again. And it was hard. I, I mean, I know that's a simple thing to say, but... It was it was hard growing up with epilepsy it really was what, you know, change a- your
0: mind to to start
1: telling people that you had epilepsy versus keeping it a secret oh there are a couple things but i remember um, when i was in high school i had really bad status epilepticus event i was hospitalized um, it was bad but my neurologist actually encouraged me to start to learn about the disease. Um, they gave me books. I'm in like the hospital with all these electrodes on my head and like having seizures, but I'm reading about epilepsy. And, um, he and th- um, my doctor then invited me to um, an advocacy event they were having at the hospital. And you know, I was just volunteering and I, came into contact with this young boy and he obviously had epilepsy, he was like nine or something. And he looked at me and he's like, you have epilepsy? And I responded, yeah. And then he began to ask me all of these hard questions. Like, can you get married? Can you have a job? Can you go to school? Can you have friends? Can you like do all of this stuff? And at the time I I wasn't sure, but of course I said yes. And after that event in my life, I, you know, I began to reevaluate how I viewed the disease. And that really started my advocacy journey. And in college, that's what made me so open about it. And, you know, as a blossoming neuroscientist who wanted to study the disease, it wouldn't look too great if I started to hide it from the very beginning of my academic journey.
0: What advice would you give to to children, students, teenagers
1: who have epilepsy? For the children who have this disorder, I would just like to say, one, you know, don't be afraid to talk to someone about it. And don't be afraid of feeling rejected because you have epilepsy. And I say that because I wish someone would have told me that and i think it would have made my childhood my childhood much more fun (laughs) and um you know you don't have to be ashamed you really don't i just wish that someone told me that i know that's a simple um, it's a simple reaction but that's really what i wanted to hear when i was like five six seven i just wanted someone to tell me it would be okay and that you know, my life wouldn't be ruined if I had a seizure.
0: Former U.S. Army Captain Patrick Horan and his wife, Patty, recounted the devastating traumatic brain injury that Patrick suffered while serving in Iraq and the challenges to his recovery process caused by the onset of post-traumatic epilepsy.
2: 2007, that's when I, uh, I'd been in, uh, Iraq for an, a year. And then, uh, one night we were going at at night to uh, do a recon. So make make sure the, uh, the bad guys weren't setting IDs for the next day. Um, so it was about two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. I went with, uh, one of my uh, soldiers and I, we went, we we're going to go downstairs to get some water Gatorade and all the stuff and bring it back upstairs. And, um, when we were about to go downstairs, um, across the street i guess i'm not sure why but i got two uh iraqis shot at us and uh my soldier he he jumped down and i it was too late for me and i got a shot right through my uh my uh, my night vision that I was wearing and so it exploded and then from there it all just went into my uh Helmet? My helmet, yeah, or, or my brain also, and uh, I. Yeah, uh,
3: there's a small flap in the helmet, so the bullet actually snuck inside the helmet.
2: And I, uh, I, I passed out. I don't remember any of that. It was about two months, but uh, one of my soldiers, he, uh, he was trying to call me on the radio, and then he ran back upstairs, and two of my soldiers had come over to see what I was doing. And he, um, my soldier, he, uh, he took off my helmet and, uh, and just saw that like half of my, my brain was just gone. It was like destroyed. So
3: yeah, they couldn't tell where the injury was. So they took off the helmet, which probably wasn't the best idea. And half his skull came off with it.
2: It was incredible. They, they, we went from there, it was about 15, 10, 15, 15 minutes away, we went to uh, Baghdad. And then uh, less than 10 minutes later, I was in a helicopter going to Balad. And I landed there like 45 minutes later. And um, they did the surgery right away, took off 40% of my skull.
0: You clearly have a traumatic brain
3: injury. Did anyone mention post-traumatic epilepsy to you at this point? So one of the things on the the list of probably 30 things that could go wrong is, like, infection, um, swelling, unable to um, maintain, like, pressure, the pressure on the brain. Um, One big thing was seizure. So they did say, if Pat has a seizure within the first three weeks, that he would most likely pass away. So that was my first introduction to epilepsy. Or and did they say anything to you about what happens if he has a seizure after three weeks or to be
0: on the lookout for that?
3: No. So, um, I mean, that really stuck in my mind. And he did not have a seizure. And prophylactically, they gave him Keppra in the ICU for the first couple of weeks. So um, thankfully, at that point, we no epilepsy occurred. We were in Chicago. We did. He did a lot of intense rehab. And they did give me this really great book on uh, brain injury recovery. And it had all sorts of things from like the coma scale, like how they come emerge out of a coma and cognition levels. And it was, it was a great book. And there was a section on epilepsy. Um, no one really spoke to me much about it in Chicago. Just gave me the book. And I remember seeing the page on it and thinking that um, it was... A possibility, um, but I just felt like, oh, you know, that's not. Maybe that's not gonna happen to us. But it did, unfortunately. And, it did. and can you tell us what happened when
0: that that first seizure occurred?
2: Patty said she woke up around like two o'clock in the morning, and just all of a sudden, I was having like a grandma seizure, <laughs> and Patty had no idea what a grandma seizure was. No. So,
3: it was probably the scariest moment in my entire life. Honestly, I thought I thought he was dying. It was four and a half months into recovery, and I thought, what in the world? You know, he came back alive. You know, alive from this gunshot wound. We've worked really hard, and now he's going to die tonight. That's
2: so. <laughs> she went, ran outside, or not in the other room, looked for a nurse, and a tickle couple minutes to find a nurse and then they the nurse went with Patty to the, my room and the nurse was like, Oh, she'll be he'll be okay, he'll be okay. You know, he'll stop, it's just having a seizure.
3: Yeah, she identified as kind of normal for the, you know, brain injury that he had, but it was a full body, very violent convulsive seizure. Um but at least like when it did surface, he was in bed. We were in a hospital uh, we could get medical quickly. It was pretty amazing that night, too, because it stopped and the nurse went away. And then 10 minutes later, it started again. So it was this rolling seizure situation, which was extremely dangerous. They called the paramedics from Northwestern, throw them on a gurney. We're running at like two in the morning through all these hallways because there's like these secret patches passageways from... Um, from RIC to Northwestern. So they had to get them on a Dilantin drip like as soon as possible because it could cause more brain damage. So it was an exciting evening to say the least, but um, all of the rehab that we'd worked on for months was just gone in like a blink.
0: Yeah, Doesn't that to was gonna over. be my very next question is just how, how did the appearance of seizures impact Pat's recovery?
3: It was hard. I mean, most of his seizures were in the first couple of years, and that's when we were working the hardest, and the brain was putting itself back together. He was making the most gains, but then we'd get these like horrible grandmas, and we were doing all sorts of different medication regimens, trying to figure this out. So it really got in the way of recovery, Um, and it was very deflating.
4: Hi, this is Brandon from Cure Epilepsy, An estimated 3.4 million Americans and 65 million people worldwide currently live with epilepsy. For more than 20 years, CURE Epilepsy has funded cutting edge, patient focused research. Learn what you can do to support epilepsy research by going to cureepilepsy.org. Now back to Seizing Life.
0: We spoke with Dr. Andres Kanner, Director of the International Epilepsy Center at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, about the relationship between epilepsy and mental health. Can you break it down for us just on a very basic level, how mental health and epilepsy are connected?
5: There is a very close relationship between uh, what we call psychiatric comorbidities, uh, and epilepsy. A psychiatric comorbidity is a con- psychiatric condition that tends to occur more frequent in people with epilepsy than in the general population. And of these uh, comorbidities, uh, the most frequent ones are mood, which includes uh, depressive disorders, and anxiety disorders are the most frequently encountered conditions. Now that would imply that when you suffer from epilepsy, uh, there are psychological consequences, but it's actually much more complex than uh, looking at mental health uh, phenomena as a consequence of the epilepsy, because very often the person who suffers from epilepsy has already suffered from a history of mood or anxiety disorder or other psychiatric conditions before the onset of epilepsy. And then they may experience these uh, uh, psychiatric conditions after their seizure disorder has become uh, manifested. Not only are people with epilepsy at greater risk of developing certain psychiatric conditions, but if you have a history of depression, anxiety, uh, attention deficit disorder with an inattentive type, you've got an increased risk of developing epilepsy. So you can, in fact, this uh, uh, start identifying the bidirectional relationship between these psychiatric conditions and epilepsy.
0: When I was preparing for this episode to learn that, that it's bi-directional, I was shocked by that.
5: The fact is the majority of people with depression and anxiety don't develop epilepsy. But when you look at the the risk that uh, people who've had these psychiatric conditions develop uh, epilepsy, uh, it's... uh, Uh, it's higher than that of the general population. So if you have, for example, a a, a major depressive disorder, your chance of developing epilepsy compared to the general population is twofold higher. If you have a history of having uh, uh, an anxiety disorder, the risk that you have of developing epilepsy compared to the general population is also between two and threefold higher. Now, that doesn't mean that these conditions are causing the epilepsy. The most likely scenario is that the pathogenic mechanisms that are operant in these uh, psychiatric disorders occur as well in epilepsy.
0: Up until recently, I really do feel like the conversation around epilepsy has been around the seizures and it's really only been recently that the the scientific community ha- has looked at epilepsy as how it is affecting the entire person and in this case mental health are steps being taken to connect these two to make sure you know to have psychiatrists available are you know, because an epileptologist is not a psychiatrist. Those are two yes. very different practices. How how do they work together, and is that happening? And how can we make it happen?
5: It, it's important that the neurologist who is treating the patient with epilepsy become part of the evaluation of the psychiatric profile of the patient as part of the comprehensive evaluation of the of the seizure disorder, and of the patient, and not relegated to the therapist, psychologist, or psychiatrist. When you look at the journey of a person with epilepsy, after the diagnosis is is made, there are a lot of psychological processes that the patient goes through that we also fail to recognize, and that also can then uh, perpetuate, uh, you know, psychological issues for a long time. And the the, the best example is, for example, uh, the issue of accepting the uh, fact that when you have a seizure and when you're told that you have epilepsy, you lose your predictability in life. Right? When you're told you have epilepsy. You don't know when you're going to have another seizure or if you're going to have another seizure. And the, the first thing that we as neurologists, epileptologists, or clinicians have to help patients and family members deal with is the acceptance of the predictability of life has been lost.
0: So how should a neurologist uh, present the mental health issues to a patient and and when should they
5: be presented? This is something that should be part of the overall uh, initial evaluation of the patient with epilepsy. I think any patient with epilepsy should undergo a uh, careful evaluation as to the previous history of psychiatric illness, mainly mood disorder, anxiety disorder, attention deficit disorder, and psychosis, but also of a family psychiatric history. That should be part of the evaluation of any patient with epilepsy. And the reason that that is very important is because the presence of a previous psychiatric history or a family psychiatric history should be a red flag for the physician to anticipate that that individual Maybe at increased risk of experiencing further recurrence of these psychiatric conditions in the course of their life. And that's just because that's a natural course of these conditions. But if you have a family psychiatric history, that also puts you at increased risk of experiencing these conditions under certain situations that uh, put you at increased uh, level of stress, and such as having a diagnosis of epilepsy the big changes that are associated with a diagnosis of epilepsy, where you can't drive, you cannot do a whole variety of things. And that can, if you have a genetic predisposition for mood or anxiety disorder, that can bring those conditions up to the surface.
0: Cure Epilepsy Taking Flight grantee, Dr. Gemma Carville, explained how genetic discoveries in the lab may lead to precision care in the doctor's office.
6: Tell us about the research that you're doing now. It's a completely crazy idea that if it pans out, could really transform clinical care for patients. Well, in our case, clinical care for patients. And so the idea that we had was um, that we may be able to use cell-free DNA as a biomarker. So what cell-free DNA is, um, so most places where people have come across cell-free DNA is with non-invasive prenatal testing. So previously, particularly with advanced maternal age, you would have an amniocentesis, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a particularly invasive procedure. And the idea there is to look for any sort of chromosomal abnormalities. But there are lots of risks associated with amniocentesis. And so what a colleague of mine had this great idea um, that he could look in the plasma, so if you separate out blood, Mm -hmm. you get this top layer that's called plasma. And in there is what's called cell-free DNA. And cell-free DNA comes from a cell that has died and burst open. And when that cell bursts open, the DNA is released into, the, into eventually into the plasma. And it exists as really short little fragments of DNA. So roughly around 150 nucleotides. So really, really small. But what you can do is then study that DNA. So in the case of non-invasive prenatal testing, you can actually find fetal DNA in the plasma of mom. And then you can use that to determine whether the fetus has a potential chromosomal abnormality. So cell-free DNA is completely transformed in IPT, and now it's the first-line test, amniocentesis is not done anymore. So following on from that, we had the idea that perhaps we could use cell-free DNA from patients in epilepsy. So again, here the idea is, at least in a subset of individuals who are having seizures, those seizures can lead to cell death. And then when cell death occurs, those short little fragments of DNA may exist in the, self, in the uh, cerebrospinal fluid as well as in the plasma of that individual. So what we're trying to do is ask the question, can we find cell-free DNA that originated from the brain in the plasma of individuals with epilepsy? And the idea there is we could potentially develop it as a biomarker. Um, One of the big challenges in epilepsy is that um, one of the only real biomarkers, if you will, is having an EEG or having an MRI, in the case of looking for structural abnormalities. And those are pretty tricky techniques, right? Because you need to, or approaches rather, because you need to go into the hospital, you need to be monitored. They're very time consuming. Exactly, exactly. And there is no peripheral biomarker. There's no way we can look in the blood and see if an individual has had a seizure or not. So it's a completely crazy idea. But everybody thought that looking for cell free DNA of or fetal cell free DNA in the blood of moms was crazy. Mm-hmm. And now it's mainline. So we're hoping to try and apply some of these ideas to see if we can use cell free DNA as a biomarker in epilepsy.
0: So it is diagnosing epilepsy using these using the blood, which mm-hmm. is different than say doing like whole exome sequencing or whole genome sequencing, where you're looking more for the diagnostic cause. So this way you don't have to spend three to four days in the hospital or longer waiting for that seizure to happen. You can just test the blood and diagnose the, the epilepsy from that.
6: And you can potentially tell if an individual is having seizures, yeah. So it's a long, long way from being in the clinic, but that's kind of the end goal of, if this were to work and we could find that cell-free DNA, this is one potential application. I've
0: only been a part of this community for the last four years. And even you know the testing and the knowledge that has become available in genetics is um, in those four years is outstanding. Um, from being deep inside the the genetic research piece of it, what are the changes that you have seen in the last you know, 10, 15 years? Mm-hmm.
6: So I started this in this field about probably 10 years ago now. And back then, there were a handful of genes that we knew caused epilepsy. Maybe 10, 15, not very many at all. And some folks within the community even doubted whether genetics was gonna play a big role in epilepsy. And now, 10 years later, we can do exome sequencing, we can do genome sequencing. I think what's been really exciting to watch is, one, for a lot of families, we can find an answer. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, at least in the early onset pediatric epilepsies, that's anywhere between 30 and 50% of cases. The other part has been that we're really going to, in the next five to 10 years, start seeing where once you can identify a genetic mutation that there are going to be precision therapy choices. Another good example is perhaps Mm SEM1A. So here, if you have a mutation in this gene, there are certain medications that should be avoided. So I think more and more, as we identify more individuals with mutations in these genes, we can start to get a better sense of which medications work, which ones don't. Um, But then also moving forward, thinking about novel therapies. Um, There's exciting work in um, antisense oligos, uh, where they are trying to target specific genes um, to um, prevent seizures. Um, And there'll be a lot more tailored therapies based around those those genes. In the next five to 10 years, like I said, I think that there are going to be precision therapies for some of these epilepsies. I think that is gonna be one exciting area of research. We would like to
0: thank all of the guests who joined us on the Seizing Life podcast during 2020. Though we couldn't sit together in a kitchen and discuss issues face-to-face, we truly appreciate the time, energy, advice, and expertise that our guests have shared with us throughout the year. We hope you will consider supporting Cure Epilepsy and our mission to fund epilepsy research by visiting cureepilepsy.org forward slash donate. Your support and generosity are greatly appreciated. Thank you.
4: The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CURE. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. CURE strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical condition be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual's specific health situation.